Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Look deeper. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back. I'm your host, Melanie Peterson, and today's episode is going to dive into the case of Dorothea Puente. After a rough beginning in her life, abused and neglected, Dorothea was orphaned by the age of six and eventually taken in by relatives. This early trauma is what I think ultimately led her down an extremely exploitative path later in life, cashing the social security checks of the elderly and mentally disabled tenants who lived in her boarding house in Sacramento, California. And what her neighbors didn't know is that Dorothea was also murdering the tenants who gave her trouble and then would continue to cash their checks after their deaths. To everyone who knew her, Dorothea appeared to be a kind older woman who lived in a nice house on a nice street in a quiet neighborhood who just went out of her way to help people get back on their feet. But unfortunately, that was far from the truth. On November 11th, 1988, Dorothea Puente would be caught after police discovered a body buried on her property. They would eventually find seven bodies and she would be charged with nine murders. How did Dorothea get away with all this? Well, my friends, sit back and buckle up because this one is going to be a bumpy ride. This is Mask of Sanity. Dorothea Puente was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9, 1929, in San Bernardino County, California. Her parents, Trudy Mae Yates and Jesse James Gray, were both alleged alcoholics and worked on a cotton farm. They also severely neglected Dorothea. She later recalled that, quote, both parents abused her and she often had to scavenge for food, end quote. So for those early years, 
Dorothea was put in a position that would critically affect her development. We've seen it time and again. Children who are abused at a very young age often run a higher risk of experiencing issues later in life. According to a resource sheet from the Child Family Community Australia, there is evidence to suggest, quote, that adults who are abused or neglected as children are at increased risk for intergenerational abuse or neglect, end quote. Unfortunately, this seems to fit Dorothea's case to a T because her emotional and physical abuse as a child led her to abuse and take advantage of older people in her care later in life. It doesn't excuse her behavior in any way, shape, or form, but this abuse forced her to adapt in the only way possible so she could survive as a child. By the time Dorothea was six years old, she would be an orphan. Her father passed away when she was four, and then her mother followed just two years later. As a result, she was sent to an orphanage and then later taken in by relatives who lived in Fresno. The remainder of her childhood was either primarily uneventful and fairly normal or just not documented. She did, however, go on to lie later in life about her childhood, saying she was one of either three or 18 children. I've seen sources that say both, but regardless, one of three or 18 who were born and raised in Mexico. And clearly that wasn't the case. When Dorothea was 17 years old, she got married for the first time to a man named Fred McFowl. He was a soldier who just returned from the Pacific where he'd been fighting in World War II. They would end up having two daughters, one in 1946 and the other in early 1948. She would end up sending one of her girls to live with relatives and the other was given up for adoption. Dorothea became pregnant again later in 1948 but would suffer a miscarriage. And by the end of that year, her husband left her, and to avoid humiliation, she chose to lie about how the marriage ended and instead chose to say that her husband had died of a heart attack. In order to survive now that she was on her own, Dorothea began forging checks for money but was soon caught. She was charged, convicted, and sentenced to one year in jail but would only serve six months. Not long after she was released, Dorothea was pregnant again by a man she didn't know very well. She would give birth to a baby girl but gave her up for adoption as well. In 1952, Dorothea was now 23 years old, and she married her second husband, a man named Axel Johnson. They would be married for 14 years, and the relationship was volatile, to say the least. Abuse, rage, alcoholism, all these ran rampant throughout their marriage. In 1960, Dorothea was arrested for allegedly owning and managing a brothel and served 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. And not long after her release, she was arrested again, but this time for vagrancy and served another 90 days. Dorothea was spiraling. Her criminal activity became more and more consistent. She found more ways to commit illegal acts as a way to earn money. Things slowed down a bit around the time she turned 31. She had found a job working, quote, as a nurse's aide for the disabled and elderly in private homes, end quote. She also began running boarding houses. By 1966, she divorced Johnson and was remarried to Roberto Puente. The marriage would only last for two years because Puente was actually 19 years younger than Dorothea and apparently had difficulty remaining faithful to his wife. Around the time the marriage ended, Dorothea was in charge of another boarding house, a 16-bedroom boarding house at 2100 F Street in Sacramento. With this new position, she gave the homeless and destitute somewhere to call home, and at first, 
the neighborhood seemed grateful for someone who was going out of her way to help the people who were more in need. In 1976, 47-year-old Dorothea married her third husband, Pedro Montalvo, who was extremely abusive and an alcoholic. Their marriage lasted all of three or four months before he left, and to keep a steady flow of money coming in, Dorothea began spending time in local bars targeting older men who were most likely receiving social security benefits. She would engage them until she was able to steal their checks, forge their signatures, and cash them, but, quote, she was eventually caught and charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud, end quote. However, despite 34 counts of fraud, she was only put on probation for this, and it didn't stop her. She continued to forge checks. In 1981, she rented an apartment at 1426 F Street, and the following year, 61-year-old Ruth Monroe began living in the apartment with Dorothea. Not long after, Ruth apparently overdosed on Tylenol and codeine, and Dorothea told the police that it was a suicide because Ruth was very depressed over the fact that her husband was terminally ill. At the time, police believed Dorothea's story, and the death was officially ruled a suicide. At this point, there was nothing to suggest otherwise. And also, Dorothea apparently claimed that the $6,000 in cash that Ruth Monroe had at the time of her death had been left to Dorothea as some sort of an inheritance. Just weeks later, police were knocking on Dorothea's door again, this time because they had received a complaint from 74-year-old Malcolm McKenzie who claimed that Dorothea had drugged him and then stolen his pension checks. On August 18, 1982, Dorothea was charged and convicted of three counts of theft and given a five-year sentence. During her time in jail, she began a pen pal relationship with a 77-year-old man named Everson Gilmouth. They wrote back and forth consistently until Dorothea was released in 1985. And to her surprise, or perhaps not to her surprise, it kind of sounds like this was the plan all along, on the day of her release, Dorothea, now 56, walked out to see Everson Gilmouth waiting for her in his red 1980 Ford pickup truck. They were soon engaged in a romantic relationship. They were making plans to get married. Everson even opened up a joint bank account with Dorothea, and they moved into the upstairs apartment at 1426 F Street, using his retirement money to pay for the $600 a month rent. Things were quiet on F Street for the next few years until November 1985, when Dorothea hired a handyman named Ismael Flores. She asked Flores to put up some wood paneling in her apartment in exchange for being paid $800 and being given the red 1980 Ford pickup truck that belonged to Everson. Flores initially was a bit taken back at the seemingly generous nature of Dorothea, but she insisted he take the truck, stating it, quote, belonged to her boyfriend in Los Angeles who no longer needed it, end quote. However, in agreement, in exchange for this compensation, Dorothea also asked Flores to build her a box that was six feet in length, two feet tall, and three feet wide. She claimed it would be used to store random items like books, but it's also just about the right size to hold a grown man, don't you think? Think about those dimensions for a minute. But Flores didn't think anything of it. And honestly, he was still 
dazed, it seems like, at being given such a generous gift as a truck. It was in good condition. There was nothing really wrong with it. It was fairly new. So he agreed and unknowingly built Dorothea Puente the coffin that she would use to bury Everson Gilmouth. And what's worse is that she asked him to help her transport the box, now filled and nailed shut, to a storage facility. Flores was happy to oblige and just being the nice person that she appeared to be, Dorothea offered to come along and maybe keep him company, but that wasn't the only reason why. She wanted to make sure everything went according to plan. As they were driving along the Garden Highway in Sutter County, Dorothea suddenly asked Flores to pull over. She told him she wanted to, quote, dump the box on the riverbank in an unofficial dumping site, end quote. When he protested, she assured him that the box didn't hold anything valuable, just junk. On January 1st, 1986, a couple of men out fishing found the box lying along the riverbank and called the police, who discovered the decomposing remains of an elderly man inside the box. All the while, Dorothea was still cashing Everson's pension checks and even went so far as to write letters to his family, reassuring them that he was fine and excusing his lack of communication with him on previously being ill and not feeling his best. She lied to his family and used his money to help her run her new room and board business while Everson's remains went unidentified for the better part of three years. Dorothea, with her new bed and breakfast, room and board, boarding business, whatever you want to call it, she soon became a favorite among social workers. Her boarding house was thriving with over 40 tenants, and she was one of the few who was willing to take in boarders that were usually rejected, like drug addicts or ones who seemed to have violent tendencies. And even the neighbors, again, noticed how kind Dorothea seemed and that, you know, she must be a good person if she wants to help so many others who need it. But some of the tenants who lived with Dorothea felt differently. They often complained that she was stingy. She wouldn't give them their mail or their money. Others, on the other hand, were grateful for a roof over their head and home-cooked meals. One of the appreciative ones was a homeless man who went by the nickname Chief. He would help Dorothy around the property, and she kept him on as her handyman, claiming she had adopted him. She would have him, quote, dig in the basement and cart soil and rubbish away in a wheelbarrow. The basement floor was then covered with a concrete slab. Chief later took down a garage in the backyard and installed a fresh concrete slab there as well. Soon afterward, Chief mysteriously disappeared, end quote. To deflect any suspicion, I'm betting Dorothea made it known that Chief had decided to move on and left town, or perhaps, and sadly, because Chief was homeless and a known alcoholic, maybe these concerned neighbors who were questioning what happened to him really weren't as concerned as they seemed to be about his disappearance. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. 
MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. She continued to collect the tenant's mail before distributing it. She was cashing their checks. She even would dole out just a small amount of their money which she knew they would hurriedly spend either at the local bar or purchasing other things that they may need, but she kept the majority of the money for herself for expenses. Police later concluded that she was probably bringing in around $5,000 a month with all of her scams and stealing from her tenants. That's a lot for back then. It's a lot now, but it's even more for back then. Just think about that, $5,000, what can you do for $5,000 a month. What can you pay? What could you put in savings? Just put that in perspective. And all of this was despite the fact that Dorothea Puente had been explicitly forbidden from handling government checks due to her past convictions of theft and forgery, and she had also been ordered to stay away from elderly citizens from her run-in with the law over drugging and robbing Malcolm McKenzie. Police allegedly visited the boarding house at least 15 times, yet nothing was ever done. And over the next couple of years, several tenants came to stay with Dorothea and seemed to just vanish into thin air. In 1987, 78-year-old Leona Carpenter, 62-year-old James Gallup, and 62-year-old Vera Martin came to the house and then were never seen again. And there were still questions about what happened to Dorothea's handyman chief who also disappeared. In February 1988, 52-year-old Alvaro Bert Montoya moved into the boarding house and under the guise of helping him get back on his feet, Dorothea took over all his affairs. She managed his money and helped with any communication with his social worker, Judy Moyes. Bert was diagnosed as a developmentally disabled schizophrenic and so he had regular check-ins with his social worker, but not long after moving in, Bert, too, seemed to have left without a trace to the point where Judy became really concerned. Until now, Dorothea was floating just beneath the radar. Her neighbors and local authorities were almost completely unaware that something suspicious was going on. On November 11, 1988, police once again arrived on Dorothea's front steps, but this time they were investigating a missing person report for Bert Montoya, which had been filed by his social worker. As usual, Dorothea seemed to be one step ahead of them and handed police a note allegedly from Bert stating his intentions to leave the home. However, this time, police weren't completely buying Dorothea's story. They noticed a lot of soil in the backyard that looked like it had been recently dug up and disturbed. So. They actually returned with a search warrant to search the home and the property. A search of the grounds would actually lead authorities to uncover the bodies of Bert Montoya and Betty Palmer, who, quote, was found missing her head, hands, and lower limbs, end quote. They would also determine that she had cashed over 60 Social Security checks from tenants she had murdered, totaling around $87,000. For whatever reason, while the property was being searched, apparently before the discovery of the bodies, Dorothea had been allowed to leave the property. She said she was going to go get a cup of coffee, but 
Instead of getting the coffee and coming back, she fled. She left for Los Angeles and apparently without any regard for the fact that authorities would notice that she had fled and would be trying to track her down, she went straight back to her usual game. She went to a bar and began pursuing older men, hoping to find one with a pension. It wouldn't last long though, because she was sitting there chatting up a man named Charles Wilgraves, telling him her name was Donna Johnson, and he's looking at her and then a light bulb went off. He immediately recognized her from the bulletins on the news and called the police and the local CBS news affiliate and told them he knew the location of Dorothea Puente. After being missing for five days, police caught up with her at the Royal Viking Hotel where she was arrested and taken back to Sacramento. While Dorothea was in Los Angeles, police would end up finding seven bodies buried on her property, and they also became aware that the death of Ruth Monroe and Everson Gilmouth's disappearance could be related to her as well. Gilmouth's body had finally been identified using hospital records, and an autopsy revealed that he had traces of florazepam in his system at the time of his death. Dorothea Puente, now 59 years old, was then arraigned and charged with nine counts of murder. There were also a couple of arrests of men suspected as being accomplices. In December, 46-year-old Ismael Flores, the man who had put up the paneling in her house and built the wooden box for Everson Gilmouth's body, was actually charged as an accessory to murder for building the box and also for assisting her in getting rid of it. He didn't know what was in it, but he still assisted her. And there was also 59-year-old John McCauley, who was living at the boarding house as a tenant. He was arrested on suspicion from authorities saying, quote, they believe he helped Puente dig the graves of the victims, end quote. However, despite the fact that both were arrested, I couldn't find any information about whether either were charged or if they went to trial, but regardless, it's obvious she didn't do this by herself. She had help. There was no way this little old lady, basically the kind little grandma next door, could have murdered these men, dug the graves, dragged their bodies into the graves, and then buried them all by herself. In April 1990, pre-trial testimonies began, and by June, the judge ordered that she would stand trial for the murders of Dorothy Miller, Leona Carpenter, Vera Martin, Betty Palmer, Ruth Monroe, James Gallup, Benjamin Find, Bert Montoya, and Everson Gilmel. The prosecution spent the next couple of years building their case against her, and the trial finally began in February 1993 in Monterey County, California, with John O'Mara working on the side of the prosecution. Omara would call over 130 witnesses detailing how Dorothea, quote, used sleeping pills to put her tenants to sleep and suffocated them and hired convicts to dig the holes in her yard, end quote. Now, to look at her, she doesn't look particularly strong or capable. So again, I agree. There's no way that she didn't do this by herself. She absolutely had help in these murders. Dorothea's attorneys, Kevin Climo and Peter Vlatton III, also called several witnesses, quote, that showed Puente had a generous and caring side to her and how Puente had helped them in their youth and guided them to successful careers, end quote. They also brought in mental health experts to testify that her abuse as a child 
gave her the drive to help others who were less fortunate, but also stated that her abuse created an evil side that came out under the duress of running the boarding house and taking care of her tenants. Dorothea never took the stand in her trial, but the prosecution did play a part of her videotaped conversation with police. In the video, she quote, told investigators that two of her missing tenants were in Utah and Marysville, California, end quote. However, shortly after this statement was made, police would actually find their bodies in the garden at her home. After nearly six months of testimony, Omara stated his closing argument, quote, the irony of ironies is that these people made it through all kinds of things. They go to this island of peace, this warm, wonderful woman who takes in alcoholics and other homeless people and gives them new life, and most of them don't live out the month. Does anyone become responsible for their conduct in this world? These people were human beings. They had a right to live. They did not have a lot of possessions, no houses, no cars, only their social security checks and their lives. She took it all. Death is the only appropriate penalty." End quote. The defense spoke to her childhood trauma and the fact that several witnesses spoke on her behalf saying, quote, "'If you have ever fallen down and stumbled on the road of life and had someone pick you up, give you comfort, give you love, show you the way, then you will understand why these people believe Dorothea's life is worth saving." End quote. The jury would go into deliberations, and by August 1993, they came back saying that they were deadlocked, but of course the judge requested they go back, they needed to come to a decision. And after 24 days of deliberation, this was actually the longest deliberation of a murder case in California history at the time, the jury came back with a guilty conviction in three of the murders, and Dorothea Puente received two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Without a shred of remorse, she, quote, maintained her innocence and insisted all her tenants had died of natural causes, end quote. She served out her remaining years at the Central California Women's Facility in Madera County until she passed away on March 27, 2011, from natural causes at the age of 82. Alrighty then, friends, that was the case of Dorothea Puente, the landlady from hell. She preyed on her tenants for profit. She killed them as soon as they no longer served a purpose. And, you know, I feel like most of the female serial killers I've covered, and probably most of them out there, there are a few exceptions, but they took the, the poisoning approach or using some sort of substance to incapacitate their victims. And while Dorothea kind of held to this, she also took it one step further by dismembering some of them or at least hiring someone to help dispose of the bodies, whether they dismembered them or dug the graves or buried them. Again, there was not a whole lot out there about accomplices or anything like that. They just knew that they had the person who was ultimately responsible for the deaths of these people, and so they had her. But I'm going to continue looking into it. It's It's been challenging this case a bit because there's information out there, but a lot of the questions I had, I couldn't find explicit, concrete answers to. So I'm going to keep looking, and if I have any updates, I'll be sure to record 
like a mini sode or something like that and release it for everyone. And I just keep coming back to how, why she thought she could bury them in her yard and not get caught. Because I'm sorry, if you live in California, it gets hot. How on earth did you think that someone wouldn't be able to smell the decay of those bodies in the middle of the summer? It's just absolutely disgusting. And in my opinion, it takes a particular brand of evil to take advantage of elderly and mentally disabled people. I really don't care what Dorothea thought of her convictions. She claimed that she was innocent, that her victims died of natural causes, but looking at her picture and reading her name and reading what she's done, she's just nothing but a ruthlessly evil woman. And it's so unsettling looking at her picture like she looks like she could be anyone's grandma or elderly neighbor but here she was taking advantage of all of these people and then murdering them and burying them in her backyard it just i always think that because i've done so much research on different killers i've read about different cases that things won't surprise me as much as they do but clearly that's not the case because I'm still surprised every single day by the levels of evil that seem to happen over and over okay friends on to happier things don't forget um, if you have any suggestions for episodes please keep reaching out I have a few that I'm working on and if you haven't done so yet please follow the Oracle Network on Twitter and Instagram as well it's the amazing new indie podcast network that I am a co-founder and network lead of it's on Instagram and Twitter at Oracle Network and Oracle is spelled O-R-A-C-L-3 we also have a website it's linked in the episode notes of this episode and has bios podcast players lots of different information for all the podcasts currently in the network so you can listen to all these amazing shows if you yourself are a podcaster or know someone who has a show and maybe they're looking for a network to join we also have a contact page so we're taking consideration uh, for new shows all the time so if you're interested reach out there as well and please stick around after the show for the promo trailer for the podcast Beyond the Rainbow and a very, very happy Pride to all of my listeners. This is June, it's Pride Month, and I am with you guys. I support you, I love you, so happy Pride. Just a reminder, my resources and Patreon link for those of you interested in bonus episodes and minisodes are linked in my episode notes as well. Thank you all so much for listening, and join me next week when I cover the case of Charles Schmid, the Pied Piper of Tucson. Until next time, stay safe, friends.
Mask of Sanity is partnered with the Oracle Network. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. It's me, CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, True Crimes of the LGBT. I have sprinkled myself with protective glitter and jumped upon my trusty unicorn to bring stories of the LGBTQI. Whether you belong to this community or not, I welcome you to take a listen to Beyond the Rainbow. I have all sorts of crazy, chilling, and horrifying stories I tell. It's available almost everywhere you listen to podcasts. Still not sure I'm worth a listen? Then check out my website at beyondtherainbowpodcast.com. And remember, it's not a crime to be gay. Unless you're a murderer. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.